Hey everyone, welcome back to Stars Like Us. I'm your host, Eliza Kelly, and today I am here with Jill Shock, like the electric shock, Death Doula, founder of Death Doula LA. Jill is a sun in Aquarius, moon in Cancer, and Leo rising. Some very powerful placements here. Jill, it is so lovely to connect with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Eliza. I'm excited to be here. So I have been sort of creeping on your Instagram page and I've probably, you know, I don't know if you are using a any cookie tracking devices, but I've also been on your website, even pre-pandemic. I'm really fascinated by death. <laughs> I, I find it to be a really strange and compelling and complicated topic. Obviously, then 2020 came and was a tremendous year in as it relates to death. Yes, uh, yes. And yeah, I am I'm really just, you know, I'm personally very interested in learning about your work, but I think that especially when we're thinking about a birth chart and astrology, so much of the language is surrounding, you know, s- someone's arrival into this dimension. But still, even though we have planets that we know that we're not going to be alive to see the full orbits of, and we recognize by tracking the cycles of things that, you know, surprise, spoiler alert, we're all going to die. It's still a complicated topic to broach. It's still a, it's still one that astrology, I think, doesn't necessarily completely reconcile because we even though we say that the birth chart lives on after someone passes we don't necessarily have a vocabulary for what that really looks like so i'm really interested in our listeners getting to know you too and think about what think about dying from a different perspective so if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about who you are what your background is how you became a death doula and what death doula la is um I think we I think we're all very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I think first, just let it be known that I never set out to work in the death space. You know, I didn't have this idea as a child or anything like that. I mean, there wasn't really an early onset of maybe what some people would call a morbid uh, curiosity. I went to college to be an archivist. Um, to work in public history. And that's exactly what I did. It wasn't until death completely interrupted my life for the first time that I became so mystified by it. And also I continually was having the question of where do we go to get help when everything is sort of crashing around? And Going through death, there's so many different components of it. It's very complicated. Um, and so I noticed the lack of guidance, the lack of support, and the lack of advocacy almost immediately when I experienced death for the first time. So that kind of put me in a existential spiral in my brain and in my heart. I really wanted to become the help because I just didn't think that there was appropriate help. Um, So what I actually chose to do was go back to school. I went to uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School and there I studied clinical philosophy. 
Um, so like how disease, illness, and death can interrupt life and how people make meaning out of those experiences. So a lot of medical ethics, a lot of theology, a lot of existentialist philosophy. Um, my formal training is, at a, is as a clinical chaplain or spiritual counselor would be the word I prefer since chaplain can have some Christian tendencies, but we're, you know, I'm multi-faith, interfaith, all faith. <laughs> so my career in end of life and working with people who are just within a deep crisis started in 2009. And I have owned Death Doula LA for three, four years now, end of 16, early 2017. And like you said, 2020 and COVID, like really changing things. This has been one of the deathiest years I've ever seen. It's It's been quite a wave. <laughs> so I, I mean, I have so many questions, so many curiosities, but just staying on 2020 and death and COVID for a moment, you know, death, I think, is such a personal journey. You know, I think it's so incredibly admirable to sort of go through the grief, the chaos, the disruption of a loss, and then recognize like, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't need to be this way. There should be more support. There should be more advocacy. And I think a lot of the sorrow of death is the isolation of it, the loneliness, sort of that feeling of being kind of, you know, just having this tremendous pain and burden that you and you alone have to process and reconcile. But what's quite interesting about 2020 and COVID is that death is happening on such a macro level now. And we're sort of a society that's seeing and being exposed to death in a way that definitely here in the United States is not normal for the way that we process death and loss. You know, I was in New York City, as I am, um, in the beginning of COVID. And it definitely was not, you know, it's not normal to have refrigerators for dead bodies outside of hospitals. Right. Granted, I was also in New York as a kid. I was, 11, I was 12 on 9-11. Mm. So my interest in death and understanding and sort of interaction with it started, I would say, at about that time. It left such an impression on me, a very haunting one, of course. But there's a whole generation of younger kids now who are going to be thinking about death differently, you know, on a national level and then also on a global level. Um, and then there's not even just the kids, just all of us who have are seeing these numbers and seeing, you know, whether it's in their cities or even in their own families, it's pretty tremendous. Do you think that the way that we are going to metabolize death as a collective is going to change after this? I mean, it already has. I think um, as soon as COVID hit, you know, like you said, we're dealing of a, on a macro level of exposure. And for me, it's kind of like, okay, finally, we're going to have something. There's something called death anxiety. And there's something that we do to mask and cope with our death anxiety called terror management theory. Okay, so having the exposure to death in the way that we have and are is actually waking people up to say, this could happen to me. 
And what we really have to do with death is be honest about it and respect it in the way that we would respect birth. And, you know, who's thinking about death differently? I think we were already rolling into a generation, you know, we're with the baby boomers now. We've mostly done the deaths of their parents. You know, we've mostly gone through that generation. There's still some, but they're very old, like in their 90s plus, even in their hundreds. So it's we're looking at this next generation that's going to be dying over the next 30 years. And we're talking about the generation that's lived with the summer of love, uh, the civil rights movement. These people are creative. They're thinking out of the box. They don't want what their parents want. And now they're being like overwhelmingly threatened with, you know, do I have my affairs in order if I suddenly get attacked by this crazy virus? And so a lot of people have kicked kicked in the gear to start doing their advanced care planning because that's very important so that the healthcare system doesn't just run you over. And also we're doing a lot of work around reinventing the funeral. Meaning instead of doing it after you die, say goodbye first. And instead of surrendering your body to a funeral home to do all the prep, you can do it in your own home with your loved ones, not a stranger. So we are really evolving back, as we were kind of talking earlier about that 200 years, back to how we were doing death before the Civil War. We actually have that big fracture in 18, you know, 61 through 65. And a lot of this actually has to do with Abraham Lincoln, his trauma with his dead son, Willie, the connection of embalming there, and then the connection of embalming to the Civil War. This is the first time that we see corporate intersection with death. Before this, death is all in the home. Death is done by everybody who lives there. And we display the body for as long as possible without preservative preservative methods because we don't even have them. And so what I really see is there's a major amount of people now looking at death in general and then realizing we want to go back to that space to where we have the time and control over this space with our loved ones as they're dying. And for us as the dying people, we want to be around people we love and spaces we're comfortable in. So there's this huge change. I'm excited to hear what the next 200 years could bring because I'm I really think we're finally going to flip death care in America back to something that's more authentic to us. Well, it's interesting because while we were just doing a little like, you know, pre-chat before we started recording, you, I I had asked, as I always ask with all my guests, is there anything that you want to talk about or promote or, you know, circle back to make sure that we cover? And you were like, oh, well, maybe we'll get to it because there's going to be a tremendous change in 200 years. And I kind of had that sort of like, like, did you know that we just entered a new 200 year period? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how that overlaps. And I love the Aquarian aloofness of it, the casualness of like, oh, yeah, you have a 200 year period. We do, too. And I just think it's so perfect because we we do have one. I mean, the change that just occurred is that we, as of you know, the time of this recording yesterday, moved into a new era uh, as sort of ushered in by Jupiter and Saturn's alignment in Aquarius. Um, and this is the great mutation because it changes us. It mutates from Earth age to air age. I'm really, really excited about this because one, we're at the very, very end of the Earth era. And I think that we can all 
definitively say that like we kind of fucked that one up, you know, like we got Donald Trump at the end, who is just like such the physical manifestation of what goes wrong in a greedy, capitalist, nepotism heavy, billionaire worshiping culture. He is a byproduct of the 200 year Earth era. And now as we move into the air age, I think it's going to be, I think we could actually maybe start tackling some big issues like climate change in particular, when we're not attached to the earth and we're not saying like, this is my land. Like maybe we could use our air brains to have a little bit of perspective to lift off and say, damn, we really fucked up. Like, how do we make this right? Right. Without feeling so possessive and needing to have ownership, which is such earth stuff. Money is such earth stuff. And it's so interesting that that corresponds with a shift in death industry and potential of what and COVID being here as well, you know, as that sort of transition. Huge, huge shift. And it's so interesting that the Earth era is tied into capitalism because that's what spiraled out of control with the funeral industry. You know, the average American funeral costs $35,000. What? Yeah. Yeah. And that's I mean, ridiculous. That's just your basic average at Forest Lawn. That's like not even, you know, if you're in LA, it's crazy how much they will charge you for what they're selling you and capitalizing on. They're selling you what they think is meaningful. They're selling you the memory picture. And it's like, we didn't ask for any of that. We can do all of that at home. We don't have to give you $35,000. You can do a cremation for less than $1,000 and have some kind of meaningful ceremony that's personal to you. So I really want to break that model of capitalism. The funeral industry has gotten itself up to like a multi, multi-billion dollar industry a year, one of which uh, one of the big overlords They're called SCI, Service Corporation International. They're publicly traded. So you can see the amount of uh, capitalism that has saturated itself into death. And that's something that we're reversing. Another thing that we're looking at is green, green, green. We're tired of putting embalmed bodies in metal caskets into a vault in the ground. You know, we have so many different options now, options to give our body back to the earth in ways that aren't going to damage it, but actually nourish it. And I think that's another really attractive feature of what's going to be coming in the next 200 years. Um, so I'm really excited about moving away from the greediness, the capitalism, empowering people to do it on their own, like DIY type stuff, and then really getting into the green aspect of refueling the earth with us as it was originally intended. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how much does spirituality embed itself in your work? And then do you feel spiritually connected with the body, the soul? Is there a separation of those two? Are they the same? I mean, how does these the sort of mystical musings tie into the work that you do? Experiencing the dying atmosphere. So the atmosphere that a person is dying in, and most of us go unconscious for a while before we die. So that unconscious dying space that we enter, that is a psychic space, a spiritual space, a space that people need the right atmosphere to navigate. They need to feel safe. 
They need to feel grounded, energetic presence around them. At that point, we really are communicating with them on a different level. They might not be hearing us. We might not even be in the same room, but they can feel kind of that we're there. And so it's a very mystical experience to see kind of what comes from any individual dying person as they're in that unconscious space and the energy that becomes around them and the energy that we also contribute. Um, so I really think that's the spiritual aspect of it. Obviously, it's very hard to prove this, but this I've seen thousands and thousands of people die and I see what they go through and it. it's almost like they don't even know when they're taking their last breath. I don't think people have this inner dialogue of, oh my God, I just stopped breathing. I think they just comfortably and energetically move on. And death is often more peaceful than people realize. You know, it's interesting because in my work, I will hear, and I have the privilege of working with thousands of people as well. So I have a pretty decent sample size on this of people who have told me that when a loved one has passed, and this is also in my own in my own family, this is true. When my loved one, when a loved one is passed, that they, even if they're not in the same environment, same city, that they will hear a message from their loved one, something reassuring usually, or soothing or really personal, really poignant. And then they'll get a phone call that that person has crossed over. Is that something that you've also experienced? Absolutely. It goes both ways too. It might be someone who's like earthbound and they kind of get the message that someone has died and then they find out they're died. It also might be someone who is dying and actually getting a message from somebody who's already crossed over. They might be coming to visit them. And this happens. I literally, it's a high percentage. I'm going to say like 85 to 90% of the time, they start to have some kind of lifting of the veil where they can look through and talk to people who are already deceased. And also, I think they can send psychic messages to the living as well. They're very powerful. Yeah. When my grandmother started to have dementia a few years ago, and my grandmother prior to her dementia was, you know, really active, like in in 2016, we were going to clubs in New York City. And then I saw I saw her sort of dipping in and out. And I started to see that something was changing. And now it's you know, pretty severe. Um, She's 91. And for the past few years, my grandfather who passed away when I was 17 has been more and more of an active person in her life. And she'll ask me, how's Cy doing? Have you seen him? And I'm like, no, have you? And she's like, no, I haven't. And I was like, when was the last time you saw him? And she was like, a few months ago. But it's like, he's around, you know, and it's been just, and when she was still living at home, she would be looking out the window, waiting for him to come back. And she was quite certain that she was going to see him. And it does seem in this way, like my grandfather and her sort of seeing him, but then not seeing him and asking how he is and like being like, does anyone in contact with him? You know, like anyone know what's going on with grandpa Um, is like kind of this interesting harbinger of her own passing. Right. And it's like the more that she's in that state, the less physically present she is. And the more she talks about her husband, my grandfather, who's not here and hasn't been for a long time, the more that she, I see her sort of move into this other state of mind. Yeah, you're right. That's kind of the first step that people take when they're in their, the beginning stages of their dying process, which typically the dying labor process takes about one to three months. But the withdrawing, And then the sort of the connecting to the other side, 
whether it's through sleeping a lot or actually seeing and hearing things that are coming to them. I obviously don't know what it is, but it's very mystical. And like I said, dying people, they become more psychically powerful in in ways that are hard to understand. It would probably take a lifetime of work to maybe get a glimpse of the truth on that. Yeah, that's so beautiful. So how do you reconcile seeing thousands of people die? Is that something that's comfortable for you? I'm very comfortable around death. You know, I grew up with a family and um, a traditional church that did a lot of open caskets. So I was kind of used to seeing bodies. I realized that there's some people who go there most of their life without seeing a body without life in it. Um, So I had already been exposed to that. My dad had cancer when I was young. So I, we kind of had a brush with death there. He eventually did die of cancer, but 25 years later. But the truth is, is that I just fully accept death. And that is a daily practice. Because for me at a young age right now, I don't have anything that's pressing. I mean, COVID obviously influences all of us. We know that we're all susceptible. Other things I also think about are like car accidents and stuff. But the more you kind of go through these exercises, like, yes, you are immortal. You could die just going down to the grocery store and back. You know, I have to remind myself that every day. And I think just keeping up that exercise, I'm no different than any other human being that could die today. And it's just a constant reminder. It's real work. And you can get set off by different things. Like for me earlier this year, it was Kobe dying in a car accident that kind of triggered my dying in an accident thing. Um, And then COVID, you know, having friends that were hospitalized who worked in the hospitals, you know, and just seeing how young people just aren't immune to this. So it's a constant exercise with my own death anxiety because we all have death anxiety. It's our human condition to be conscious and be aware that our life is finite. So like that gives our life meaning, but also can make us really uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's horrific. I can't, I can't ever get to a state where I feel totally comfortable with it. And I, maybe that's the point is that we're not supposed to, I I would say I'm more comfortable talking about, thinking about working with people on topics of death than maybe the average 31-year-old American. But <laughs> but I would say that when it comes to like, my own death feels more comfortable for me than thinking about my loved ones dying. You know, that is where it just feels sad, sad, sad. And that is like just even my own, I feel like it kind of does go back to ego in a way where it's like, well, I'm really kind of more sad about them dying because I'm going to be really sad when they die. You know, I actually trust in their journey and I trust in death and I trust in the sort of the beautiful, many, many, many orbits that we have in this conscious body, you know? And I trust that there is actually a continuation of a journey, even when this vessel isn't being animated in the same way. But yeah, the the idea of being sad and lonely is just hard to deal with. Yeah. And that's, I think, 
kind of what we're inundated right now with in 2020. We're just drenched in isolation and loneliness. And like you were saying earlier, that goes right along with death. (laughs) Absolutely. But I think that what you're seeing and what the opportunity here is to challenge, change, and to maybe sort of take some of death out of the billion dollar industry and back into the hands of the families and the dying would be such an important change in the way that we experience loss. Absolutely. And that's what I'm hoping for. I'm really hoping that this era, which I just kind of realized because I was reading some of your posts to kind of get a grasp on where we were. I knew a little bit about that transformation, but I didn't know what's happening now. And I couldn't feel it more in my bones. Like I'm just like ready to like go and work and do this work to get us to that place where we're dying in a better, more authentic way. Yeah. And not spending money on things that don't mean anything to us. People have been prescribed these traditions. They don't even know what they want because no one has asked them. They just assume they're going to be put in a cemetery. So giving options that are available, you know, our laws really haven't changed much since the Victorian era. We don't have funeral police who come over and say you can't spend time with your dead loved one. You absolutely can. And I think that as the ones left behind, touching the body, preparing the body, connecting with the body, understanding that dead is dead um, is something that we need psychologically for closure and to start our grief chapter. And when you say that dead is dead, can you speak a little bit more to that or how we can sort of find the solace in that? Yeah. I mean, it it feels to me in my experience, like when somebody dies, there is a moment where the life force aspect leaves and everyone can feel that. I've even seen people get kind of faint, but it's like... um. It's like a like an energy that sort of like whooshes out of the room and then like a different energy kind of like settles firmly back in. And that's sort of the realization that that person is gone. It really there's like a pause there that's very heavy. It's one of the one of the very mystical parts of death. That's so interesting. Yeah, that is that's tremendously interesting and fascinating. And yeah, I, I have never seen somebody die in my presence, but I've had a lot of people die who I was close to. And even between knowing somebody's on the way to the hospital and knowing someone is dead, I feel like I know, you know, there is a shift in energy. There is a palpable. And I, so I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, you could almost classify it, I would say, in like, weight, the feeling of the air changes. It does. Yeah. It's very strange. First, it like feels lighter and then it comes back down as something else that's a little heavier. So that's cool that you've like felt that it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's so interesting um, and so beautiful and so, so magical and so complicated uh, and so hard to appreciate because there's the sadness that immediately follows, right? Where it's like when a baby is born, another magical experience, another doula opportunity, we have the celebration and we rejoice and we celebrate. And then death, it's like then you grieve and the the grieving is so painful that it 
kind of, I, I think that it's hard to appreciate the beauty and the magic and the mystical properties of it. Yeah. And what's, I was, I think a lot about death and birth because I work with a, a lot of doulas that do one, the other, or both. And I actually think that women themselves or whoever's giving birth does go through a third, like some kind of death themselves. And I also think the baby goes through a death itself from leaving the atmosphere that it's grown in for nine months and like coming out and like breathing oxygen for the first time. Like that is totally foreign to that person. And I feel it's the same when someone stops breathing at their end of their life, they kind of push through into something else. And then mothers, you know, after they release this being out of their body, they have died in some way, shape or form. They will never be the same, you know, from that day forth. And so I think women actually have, I think we actually have all experienced death in our own births. And I think that women can experience death in giving birth. And I think we all experience death at end of life. And mm-hmm. so if you kind of look at it like that, it feels, a, it feels comforting. Like death is a new birth into whatever. We know we existed somewhere before we were born. We know that energy can't be created or destroyed. So we know you know, logically, that we exist somewhere after we die as well. And I think a lot of people find that comforting. And like you said earlier, you have a, a certain trust in that as well that we kind of cycle around. So more people are grabbing onto those kinds of things at this point rather than like afterlifes, heaven, hell, that mm. kind of stuff. That's really shifting too, like where we think we go. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because I didn't, wasn't raised in any real religion. My mom and her family are Jewish. So I would attend, you know, like the important synagogue days, but I didn't have a bat mitzvah. I didn't have, I wasn't really embedded in that. And also, you know, in, at least in the sort of like weird New Yorker version of Lower East Side Judaism, my family practice, like, the death was kind of it was a do not discuss it there wasn't any real language around it there wasn't really heaven as there is in you know catholicism and there definitely wasn't a hell which i really appreciate because it gave me a lot of opportunity to explore that aesthetic um <laughs> without any sort of uh recourse so it's but you know unfortunately i there is because there was no hell there also was no heaven and when I started losing people, when I was like 13, 14, after 9-11, when I started, you know, when friends of mine started dying, I didn't have anywhere to visualize them. You know, I couldn't put them in heaven in the clouds. At that time, I was an atheist. So I didn't even like believe that there was a God. And it was really challenging for me to figure out how do I reconcile this? And it was through time and through experience and unfortunately through more loss that I started to see the patterns. And I started to see sort of like the transition of life and death and got more a little more comfortable with the grieving process, got a little more comfortable with the absence of the person, and then allowed my narrative with them to continue even after they were no longer here. And I will say that spending more and more time in nature has definitely improved my relationship with death. Yeah, that'll do it too, because nature has a way of just really humbling you. You 
embody <laughs> this like humbleness inside you when nature shows you what it is and what it can really do. I feel the same way. Nature is a big part of my reconnection. You know, if I'm taking care of myself, maybe I need a day at the ocean or maybe I need a quiet day in the mountains. Yeah. Nature, always nature. Yeah. Always nature. It's been, it's so soothing and so important and also such perspective because, you know, when you're looking at a forested landscape, you're looking at landscape that exists so far past a human lifetime and still exists or doesn't. And even in the absence of it, it exists. Yeah. And then just the the seasons, you know? Yeah, that too. And that's why I really love this aspect of the green burial stuff. We're finally going to give back to Mother Earth with our own bodies again, because embalming is so toxic, you know, using formaldehyde and arsenic and things that aren't natural. That's that's really going to have an impact. We're probably we're we might see it, you know, in the next 50 years, we might not even be using cemeteries anymore. So we might not have space for stuff like that. So it's going to be very interesting. So what is it? Is there a simple technique or exercise that you could offer our listeners for navigating death anxiety, either what has sort of emerged in relation to this pandemic or even just as we move through our own lives, knowing that we're going to lose people and knowing that we ourselves are not going to be here anymore? Yeah. Well, everybody has their own way of doing it. I can definitely say that a lot of times people are still going to stick to the old, the old way of just not talking about it. But if you don't talk about it because it is uncomfortable, it doesn't feel good. Having a conversation about this stuff is an art, you know, that I've perfected over many years. But this is really hard for people to wrap their head around. And so I try not to put any pressure on them. If they can't accept it at the time um, or just have a bunch of death anxiety around it, just stick with them. Stick where you're at. Face your fear. Feel the fear. Feel the anxiety. Know that you can choose to live in that state of anxiety or you can choose to accept the other part of life is that you're alive now and we're going to take advantage of that moment. And I really do that feel that people get to a point of acceptance no matter what, even if it's all the way in their unconscious dying process when they're about to cross over. So I have, I have trust in that as, as well. So in sort of, let's say we, which I, I think is a normal experience, or at least, you know, for me, it's a normal experience to be like, oh my God, I could get hit by a car. I could crash in an airplane. I could, a brick will fall on my head. And then you hear that one story about a brick who does fall on somebody's head and you're like, I fucking knew it. I knew it was real, which also has happened in this past year, 2020. Fuck. Wow. What a journey it's been. How when you're having those sort of spiral moments of anxiety and fear and paranoia, do you do anything to calm yourself down or to get a little perspective or to feel more grounded? You know, I just have to sit through it. I wish I had some kind of magic bullet for that, but it's just a part of my being as a human animal. I'm going to have days where death makes me really uncomfortable and hurts me and scares me. But you just just got to sit there, walk through it, accept it. And, you know, you will eventually come out of it and start to cope and move forward. And do you think that there's anything that we can do to sort of like, you know, for listeners who are 
in their 20s, 30s, you know, still have a long road ahead of them, all willing. Is there something that we can do actively in this moment to ensure that we're going to have better deaths down the line? Totally. There's a couple things you can do. There's um, a really interesting practice out there called a living funeral ceremony, which is a whole death meditation where you write like your obituary, you have your day and time of death, and you get shrouded and you like contemplate your own death. So you can do like death meditation um, or ego death meditation exercises. There's also the use of psychedelics. I think some people use psychedelics to kind of open those doors and peer into what death might be like, or just ground into their inner self that might have some experience with death and can comfort them around death. Do the exercise of being mortal. Yes, yes, death can come at any time. You're still the same human being as the one next to you. So just, I mean, it's a constant reminder. Um, so maybe some of those meditations could be helpful to listeners. Yeah, I, I guess my whole point is death anxiety is something that you really just have to sit with for a while. And then I have another question before we wrap up, which is that what would it mean to use to go to Death Doula LA and to use the services that you offer? What does that look like and entail? Well, the first thing that we do um, is make a plan. And this is also something can, people can do at any time or any age. But um, we have something called an advanced healthcare directive. You can just Google your state, state of California, state of New York, whatever. And that piece of paper will guide people if you are in some kind of tragic ag- accident or whatever to what kind of interventions you do and don't want. Um, so with doula ship, we really start with having the conversation and then getting the conversation into a plan and then following up kind of according to that plan of care. And then we have a whole plan around your dying process, which takes three parts, um, conscious dying. So like when you know you're dying, you're still kind of up getting out of bed, saying goodbye to people, closing down your affairs. Then there's unconscious dying where you're sleeping all the time. You're in that dreamlike spiritual space, energetic space going back and forth. And then there's dead, which we already kind of talked about in having the body at home and being with your family and whatnot. So that's kind of the winning formula that I use with my clients and shaping that up. Start all the way from talking about the plan, the conception of how we think of everything, how this has interrupted your life and how we want to move forward and go through it in a really organized way. I take a lot of logistics off people's plates so that they can be in their atmosphere and paying attention to what's going on. Because if you miss it, you missed it. That's it. So I try to really get people to focus on what's happening in front of them with the death. And I'll take care of all the paperwork and all that mumbo jumbo. And we can talk about the meaningful stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because there is a lot of paperwork. Yeah, there is. And it's all ticky tacky. And if you get it wrong, it's just going to cause everybody to go into a fit. So it's better that I just handle it because I'm very used to it. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been truly lovely. And I'm so grateful for you being on the show and taking the time to talk with us today. Where can we find you and connect with you? And then um, are you still taking clients? I'm always taking clients. And I'm very happy to say that we've been growing a very 
very fruitful deaf care community out here in Los Angeles and also in New York. I've been doing a lot of work in New York as well. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Death Doula LA. It kind of looks like Doula La. <laughs> I like Doula La. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun, kind of rolls off the tongue. And then my website is deathdoulala.com. And I do have a lot of content that you can go and just l- learn more about me, learn about my practice. And if you're someone who does need help with their dying practice, I am here for you. And I'll make sure you know, that we do the best job we possibly can. So always taking clients. (laughs) Oh my goodness, Jill, it's so lovely to meet you. You are such a warm Aquarius. You really are. You have such a wonderful energy. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Aliza. 